Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, our next episode here at the Diplomatic History Channel at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics. Uh, On today's episode, I have with me Dr. Joseph Steve, who's the author of the amazing new book, The Regime Change Consensus, Iraq and American Politics, 1990 to 2003. Uh, Dr. Steve is a postdoctoral researcher at the Ohio State University's Mershon Center for International Security Studies. His articles and essays can be found in the International History Review, The Washington Post, War on the Rocks, Arc Digital, and the Rally News Observer. His book, The Regime Change Consensus, which we'll be discussing today, was just published with Cambridge University Press in July 2021, and we're really excited to have him here today. So, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. I'm really happy to be talking to you today. So, Joe, I think we should start by by start the conversation by um, telling our listeners what's this book all about. What what are sort of the main arguments that you're trying to make in this book? So, I think the core of this book is trying to explain not just how the Bush administration came to support regime change and ultimately the invasion of Iraq. There's plenty of really great scholarship on that. Uh, I particularly recommend Mike Mazar's book, Leap of Faith. Okay. It, it was to explain how the broader political, you know, intellectual and, and media establishment in the United States came to the position of, or the positions of A, thinking that containment was inadequate to, the, to, to dealing with the Iraqi threat, and then B, seeing regime change and democratization as the only solution. So, you know, the book is, is a way to kind of tell that story. I think that's significant because, so, you know, you have this group of neo, neoconservatives and other Iraq hawks in the Bush administration. They say immediately after 9-11 that, that Iraq should be the centerpiece of our response. But then they have to go convince the rest of the country. They have to go convince Congress, the media, much of the public. Right. And so I was thinking about what, you know, how can we trace historically the views of those, you know, power centers, I guess you could say, right? Those other, um, uh, sorry, the right word. yeah, we'll, we'll just call them power centers for now, that were so vital to getting most of the country on board with regime change in Iraq. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we've, as scholars, we focused heavily on the regime change side of it. Right. How did you know, the Bush administration come to this position. We also have to under, understand how they came to believe that containment was inadequate, that being the main alternative. So it's kind of a dual track story um, that tells the policy history of containment, but also the political debates about containment versus regime change from right before Desert Storm up to 2003. Um, so I can, I can go more into it, obviously, but that's the, the basic narrative. And, and we'll definitely want to go into it more and, and really sort of and hash this out because this is a story I think that a lot of people are not going to be familiar with. Uh, you know, people are obviously uh, are very um, know a lot about the 1991 Gulf War, um, but then all of a sudden we're back at Iraq in, in 2003. Obviously, there's the whole lead up, uh, you know, between 9/11 and the and the March 2003 invasion. But there's that whole period in the 1990s where um, especially younger generations who might have been born in the in the 1990s or born after 9/11 don't really know this story. So we're definitely going to want to unpack that. But before mm-hmm. we get to that, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what sort of motivated you to write about this as your first book. You know, what what was the puzzle here? I suppose I'm asking that got you really interested in this topic. Well, the original puzzle was kind of why containment, which to me had always seemed like a strategy that had essentially worked. Uh, that, you know, especially because after 2003, you found out that Saddam Hussein did not have this massive Dugan D arsenal. Right. Uh, his military remained weak. The economy was crippled. You can definitely debate the morality of the containment policy. But as a policy, it certainly kept Iraq very weak, right? And we pursued regime change in this disastrous war. 
And so it seemed appropriate that we want to go back and, and ask, well, why did so many people abandon this containment policy or start to see it as a failure even before September 11th? So I thought that was a really interesting puzzle. Uh, I thought that a lot of the you know, post-invasion debate about Iraq was really more about trying to get rid of one's sense of culpability for the war, not right. so much to understand what had actually happened in the preceding, preceding decade uh, to the invasion, but actually you know, came to this topic because of my high school teaching. So I used to be a high school teacher in Western Massachusetts and I was okay. lucky enough to be able to teach this class that, you know, basically they said, we need an elective for seniors. You can teach whatever you want. So I taught a <laughs> class about the, Iraq, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in looking for things to assign to my students, you know, I, I never really found anything about the containment policy that I really, really liked. And I thought, explained the whole story of it and explained why really after September 11th, most people who are involved in the Iraq debate just kind of said, well, everyone knows that containment has failed. Right? Right. I thought that was a question that was worth interrogating more. And I didn't really have a good answer from my students when they asked the same question. Um, so and I guess I came to it through those two avenues. So kind of zooming out a little bit, mm-hmm. can, you, can you tell our listeners what sort of U.S.-Iraqi relations were, you know, sort of in brief, because obviously there's a really long history here, were sort of in the years leading up to the to Operation Desert Storm and the 1991 Gulf War. I mean, what, what sort of triggered uh, that war? What, what, did, what were U.S.-Iraqi relations like? And why did President George H.W. Bush decide to, to get involved in the Middle East? So U.S.-Iraqi relations um, had been mixed, very mixed in Iraqi. You know, since the Ba'ath Party took over in the 1960s, the Iraq had aligned itself with the Soviet Union. And so uh, was seen as a rival to the U.S., uh, to U.S. allies in the Middle East, like Iran, Pakistan, or you know, the greater Middle East. So Iran and Pakistan, uh, the Central Pact kind of countries. That started to change with the Iran-Iraq War, right? When uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran and got in 1980, got involved in this internable war. Uh, you know, the United States was most concerned with containing Iranian expansion and Islamist extremism in the region. So we started to kind of tilt towards Iraq. Uh, took them off the the, the uh, terrorist state sponsor list. We started to be more friendly towards economic aid uh, and military sales to Iraq. And of course, you know, we had no problem with our allies like France selling tons and tons of military supplies to Iraq. Right. After 1988, when the war ends, the Bush administration thought, well, we've kind of reached out to Iraq. We've have a, you know, a potential relationship here. It's a very potentially wealthy state. It's going to be a power broker in the region. And so they designed a policy called engagement. And the hope here was that the United States could use economic aid, mostly through the Export-Import Bank and through this thing called the Commodity Credit Corporation, to kind of entice Iraq to become more like Egypt, to become a more compliant pro-U.S. ally instead of a more disruptive state in the region. Right. This policy also controversially involved not paying much attention or not speaking out against the Iraqi atrocities, such as the Anfal campaign against the Kurds. Uh, it was contested domestically. You know, Claiborne Pell, or senators as, as various as Claiborne Pell on the left and, and Jesse Helms on the right spoke out against this policy because of the kind of tolerance of Iraqi human rights abuses. It very quickly started to fall apart in 1989 and 1990 when Saddam made these threats to his neighbors um, and, you know, the invasion of Kuwait in August, sorry, July of 1990 was the death knell of this policy. So that's the, that's the background. Um, if you want, we can also talk about the larger you know, story of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, but that's the Iraq-specific background. Right. Well, yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, where does sort of Iraq in, in the years before uh, Saddam decides to invade Kuwait. Where does that fit into sort of larger or broader U.S. geostrategic thinking about the Middle East? Yeah. So if you go back to the you know the sixties and seven really fifties forward, right? U.S. goals in the Middle East are keep the Soviet Union out, right? Defend Israel, and retain access to oil resources, right? 
And over time, the prioritization of those goals shifts. And so as the Cold War wound down in the 1980s, there started to be less prioritization of keeping the Soviets out and more focus on oil resources. Uh, you know, a lot, whenever a U.S. politician used the word stability in the Middle East, that's in large part what they were referring to. Also to do with Israel, but mainly with the flow of oil resources. And uh, going back to the Carter Doctrine in, in 19. 19- 79 or 80, I can't remember exactly when he, he gave that speech. The U.S. had said, we are going to stop any effort by an outside power to take control of the Persian Gulf's resources, right? It's oil resources. Right. At the time, we were thinking about the Soviet Union because they had just invaded Afghanistan. During the 1980s, we shifted to thinking about internal threats, right? Like Iran and then later on Iraq. So that was kind of the big picture setup, right? Our goal was to maintain right. this balance of power in the Middle East that there was no single hegemon or internal hegemonic power that could control all of the oil resources or or a preponderance of those oil resources in the region. Uh, When Iraq invaded Kuwait, it was essentially making a bid to do that, right? By seizing Kuwait's oil resources and then also being able to threaten and kind of menace Saudi Arabia. Uh, It could possibly control, basically have its, you know, uh, its hands around the windpipe of the global economy. So that's the big picture background right there. It's sort of the application of a policy designed for, for the Soviets to Iraq, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So Saddam, Saddam invades Kuwait in the summer of 1990. What is the initial Bush administration reaction to this? And what is the, what, is, what do they then try and move to do to reverse the, the invasion? They're surprised and they're outraged. I mean, it's it's such an, in many ways, kind of an old school, you know, one state in, in invading another, right. just directly and blatantly violating their sovereignty, violating international law. So they're, they're, they're obviously outraged by it. They Bush especially interprets it through his experiences of World War II and the kind right. of perceived lesson of needing to stand up to bullies early before they, they t- move on to even bigger things. Right. And they also see it as part of the post-Cold War world, right? They see it as this potentially defining moment. If the international community can rally to defend the sovereignty of of a member state, as well as the rights of the people within that state, then they can set kind of a new norm, right, of collective security for the post-Cold War system that they hope will be a more stable uh, world, right? And this is especially important because the Soviet Union is no longer going to step in and prevent the United States from intervening as they might have during the cold war right so they're definitely shocked they're definitely outraged and they move very quickly and you know very effectively to mobilize the international community uh as well as to put u.s troops as part of desert shield into the region to block a move against saudi arabia um my my personal opinion is that it was some of the most brilliant diplomacy of the 20th century in the united states uh, as quickly as they mobilized the international community that's just my personal. Yeah. So, so they're mobilizing the international community to try and isolate Saddam, you know, politically, diplomatically, mm-hmm. economically. But as successful as those efforts have might have been in terms of rallying a coalition, they ultimately don't deter Saddam from reversing his invasion. I mean, they obviously put U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, as part of Operation, Operation mm-hmm. Desert Shield. Uh that prevents um, or maybe uh, convinces Saddam not to sort of expand the invasion into Saudi Arabia. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't convince him to pull back Iraqi forces from Kuwait. Can you maybe tell our listeners what, why he decides or why he's not sort of cowed into, into reversing himself after this? It's a really great question. I'll, I'll call that compellence. Okay. Uh, we, we failed to compel him. You know, deterrence is preventing someone from acting. Compellence is trying to get them to act. Yeah, the failure of compellence is really interesting. You know, I, I think when you look at the, I'm not a scholar of Saddam Hussein, I know, or, or Iraqi politics specifically. Right. When you look at the literature that's out there, especially uh, David Palkey's excellent work on Saddam, it seems that he expected there to be a showdown with the United States at some point in his lifetime for control of the Middle East. Okay. Kind of like Osama bin Laden, he had also come to believe that the United States was a bit of a paper tiger, that it might 
run away or uh, be cowed if it suffered a certain number of battle casualties. Right. You know, that was kind of wishful thinking based on the Vietnam War, based on the withdrawal from, from Lebanon. We also know that Saddam made his decisions in a, in a very small bubble of people who were you know, kind of pure sycophants and right. you know, didn't always listen to or almost never listened to dissenters. Right? So I think there was always this tension between the rational Saddam and the irrational Saddam. Um, right. So obviously it was, a, it was a huge blunder for him to not, not remove himself from Kuwait. And in fact, the, the Bush administration, there's some really interesting internal documents uh, at the Bush library that show they really didn't want him to leave because if he oh, left, he is okay. right. So this is, this to me, this is fascinating. If he had just withdrawn his forces in, let's say December of uh, 1990, well then he gets away with this crime, right. right? This international crime. He gets to keep his military, which was considerable at the time, right. one of the, one of the I think 10 biggest in the world at the time. It wants to prevent him from doing something else, right? From doing it again. Right. Uh, so they really wanted him to stay and be punished in some sense so that he'd be easier to deal with afterwards. Uh, okay. And I think that's, I'm not sure if I'm the first one to write about that, but that's something I write about in uh, in the book. That's really interesting. I, yeah. I didn't know that at all. I mean, that's, yeah, I think Iraq had like the fourth largest military in the world at this time. Uh you know, after the, after the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union, and I don't remember who was third, but um, perhaps China. But probably, yeah, uh, yeah probably. But uh, yeah, I mean, they, they had this massive military. I mean, that's that is that is absolutely fascinating. So so ultimately, Saddam doesn't leave Kuwait, and American efforts to compel him to leave fail. And so, what ultimately drives Bush and his advisors to to greenlight an invasion from Saudi Arabia into Kuwait to try and roll back Saddam's forces? Well, some of the things I've kind of already mentioned, right? They see it as right. really important to establishing these rules for the post-war international system. Right. The United States obviously has uh, this idea of you know, wanting to maintain the free flow of oil from the Middle East as a key part of upholding the global economy. In a more narrow sense, I think he comes to be kind of personally outraged by this. Uh, you know, Richard Haas put it really well. He says that George Bush senior or George H.W. Bush was someone who really believed in the right way of doing things okay. as in sort of decorum and um, kind of maybe what we might now call old fashioned values. Like, you know, Richard Haas says one time I showed up without a tie, you know, and he kind of got mad and said, you have to go put a tie on. This is the White House. Right. <laughs> and th this may seem unconnected, but the way that Haas explains it is really interesting. He says that, you know, Bush would be willing, you know, if, for example, if Kuwait was doing things like slant drilling or uh, exceeding its quota, right, these kind of little tricks in, in, in games, Iraq might have, have had a real case to come forward to the international community and say, look, or, or at least to OPEC, and say, we're, Kuwait is cheating us, right? right? But by just seizing Kuwait, by invading Kuwait, he so clearly violated any sense of process, right, of the right way of doing things. And so that seems to be a core value of his. And when you combine that with his experience of World War II and the lessons that the vast majority of Americans took away from that about appeasement, you get someone who was really willing to stake his political career on it. And he, he even says in his memoir that uh, even if the congressional vote had gone against me, which it was actually pretty close. But even if yeah. it had gone against me, I still would have pursued this just using my executive power because I thought it was that important. Okay. Wow. So yeah, clearly, you know, this is this is very high stakes for, for Bush. And yes. right, he ultimately greenlights the invasion and it's a massive success. Uh, you know, the war lasts like a hundred, you know, hours, something like that. Uh, Iraqi forces are are quickly routed out of Kuwait and you know, Bush is a hero. His approval ratings go through the roof. I think mm -hmm. right in the in the immediate aftermath of Desert Storm, he's at a ninety percent approval rating. It was like one of the highest of any American president um, in the modern era. And then he has a decision to make, right, about whether he's going to continue into Iraq and depose Saddam, or if he's just going to, uh, you know, basically accept the gains that the United States has made or the reversals that that they've given to Saddam. And, and sort of halt the fighting. So 
right? We know that Bush does not decide to go into Iraq and try and depose Saddam. Can you can you tell our listeners why he ultimately decides not to do that against the advice of a lot of the, a lot of his advisors, notably including his son George W. Bush? Yes, yes. So uh, I think the actually the only person inside the Bush administration who is pushing to kind of go all the way to Baghdad was Paul Wolfowitz, which okay. makes which kind of tracks right with his later right. career. He, he had a number of reasons. I mean, the first was that the UN mandate and the congressional mandate were not for regime change. They were for right. the defense of state sovereignty, right? The defense of, or the ejection of Iraq from Kuwait. That was a major factor. So he knew that this coalition would simply collapse if he actually you know, moved into Iraq or, or U.S. forces were in Iraq, but if he actually attempted to overthrow the regime. Uh, he and Scowcroft and, and Defense Secretary Cheney all believed that the United States would get bogged down in some kind of desert Vietnam. They thought there might be guerrilla fighting, right. uh, that they would then be involved in occupying this country that none of them really understood. You know, Colin Powell uh, was particularly hesitant to do this, right? You know, Powell believed that the military should be strictly used for kind of pure military operations, not for anything right. resembling nation building. So he was totally averse to this. Uh, I think they basically believed that this would turn to quagmire, that it would alienate the international community. It would also collapse the political coalition behind the war. Right? Uh, right. Most people who signed on to support this war, at least in Congress, didn't think it meant regime change. Right. And so there's just no, no basis for it, uh, you know, under the law, no basis for it in strategy. And so he, he decided against it. But really, that was a decision they made in the, in the fall. Uh, if you look at some of the planning documents, there was no discussion at any point or, or, or no sense at any point that they would seriously consider finishing stuff off. Okay. All right. So that's, that's, that's very interesting then. So ultimately... They, they decide not to, to sort of con- continue rolling on to Baghdad. And so in sort of the aftermath of the war, what is American policy towards Iraq? And what is Bush administration thinking in its final two years in office about how to prevent Iraq from perhaps launching another inv- invasion, either of Kuwait or maybe some other Middle Eastern neighbors? Basically, how are they now trying to move towards containing Iraq now that Iraq has been pushed out of Kuwait? That's a great question. So they, they set up the tools of containment and, and the strategy of containment during Desert Storm. So they know that if they're not going to overthrow Saddam, they kind of hope that he might fall from power, but they okay. don't really know if that's going to happen. I, th- I think they expected that to happen. It became clear by the spring that it wasn't going to happen. So even before, you know, regardless of who ends up on top of the heap in Iraq after the dust has settled, whether it's Saddam or some general or whoever, the plan was some kind of, or, or the plan was basically to impose sanctions on Iraq and then use those sanctions as a bludgeon to get them to agree to weapons inspections. Okay. Right. And that was the, that's essentially the core mechanism of containment. Sanction them so that they will comply with WMD inspections. One critical part of this is that during desert or shortly after Desert Storm, we found out that the Iraqis were way further ahead in their nuclear programs than we had thought before. Right. Before, that they were maybe within a year of actually getting access to a nuclear weapon. That made us much more uh, desirous of, of performing those weapons inspections. I think what gets tricky is the question of what exactly can Saddam do to comply and to become a quote-unquote normal country again? Right. Right, to, be, to have the sanctions off of him, to have the U.S. military not breathing down his back. You know, uh, Richard Haas and Richard Clark, some of the people who were strategizing about this, writing strategy papers in the on the NSC during Desert Fox, sorry, not Desert Fox, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, were saying, well, the simple mechanism is if he complies, you lift the inspections, right? Okay. But the problem with that, in my opinion, was was the political side of it. Right. right, that Bush had played up Saddam as a new Hitler, that Saddam Hussein, in many ways, was truly horrendous. Right, I mean, right. You know, things like launching missiles at Israel and at, you know to 
try to bring them into the war, you know, right. his generally uh, totalitarian apparatus of government, um, you know, destroying the oil wells in Kuwait to create this environmental good. I mean, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a villainous character. Right. And this argument started to be generated during Desert Shield and Desert Storm that this was a totalitarian regime and the only way you could make Iraq a normal, stable country in the region was to overthrow the regime and replace it with a democracy. That even if it's a follower of Saddam Hussein who takes power, he's still going to be a product of that totalitarian mindset, right? That's absolutely opposed to U.S. power, that's maniacally fixated on getting WMD and ultimately on dominating the region. And so Bush and, uh, you know, that becomes kind of the political expectation. And in American, I call this the fallout from victory. A lot of Americans are really disappointed by the way the war ends. There seem to be all these little points that the United States could have pushed a little harder, gone a little deeper into Iraq, uh, targeted the Iraqi Republican Guard, and maybe that would have toppled the regime. Right? So there's this mismatch between the ends uh, of Bush's strategy, or no, sorry, not, not the ends, the rhetoric that Bush used and the political heat around the war and the way it actually ends. Right. And you have to add on to that the refugee crisis, right? the, the massacre of the, civilian, uh, the Shia in the south, Right. Iraq almost plunges into a civil war. The United States intervenes in Operation Provide Comfort to protect Kurdish refugees in the north. Right. Right. It's this just messy, sticky, ambiguous ending. And so Bush makes these statements and other Bush officials make these statements at the end of the war that say, well, we're not going to lift sanctions while Saddam is in power. Right. And right. that totally goes against the way the U.N. Security Council resolutions that created the sanctions is written, because those say, if you obey the sanctions, I'm sorry, the inspections, sanctions will be lifted. Right. And that creates this divide between the United States and the rest of the international community and how to enforce the sanctions and inspections. And so I, I really think that that, uh, you know, the, the really six months after the end of Desert Storm are almost as important to Iraqi U.S. relations for that decade as Desert Storm is itself. And that's something I try to, you know, explore in the book. Right. Sorry, that's so, a long answer, but <laughs> no, I mean, I mean that those are the best kinds of answers, ones that are really full of the detail <laughs> and and really get into it. I mean, thank you. So, you know, going looking at the other side of this in the aftermath of of the Gulf War and Desert Storm, you know, what what is Saddam's reaction to all this? I mean, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about international politics and relations, you know, especially with a country like the United States, it's like the U.S. does X. And, you know, the the why, which is sort of the objective of X, that just happens, right? But other countries are actors who have agency in the international system. So Saddam has now been defeated, and he can see that the U.S. and perhaps its partners are now trying to sort of contain it. And what is he trying to do to perhaps undermine containment? Or generally, what would you say his reaction is to American policy post the Gulf crisis? So in a sense... And I'm drawing on the work of other scholars here. Uh, right. As again, I'm not an Iraqi specialist, but Saddam sort of has a confirmation bias with with Desert Storm. You know, he thought the United States was a potentially paper tiger before the war, and even right. though his military gets smashed during the war, it's not, you know such a decisive, seemingly decisive conflict. He, at the end of the conflict, thinks, "Ah, oh, well, this shows America won't go all the way. Right? They don't have the metal." or the toughness to really finish me off, even right. though they you know, completely crippled his military and you know, destroyed much of Iraqi infrastructure as well. <laughs> so in a sense, he sort of reconfirmed in his delusions by okay. the outcome of the war. And he very quickly sets about creating a coordinated, or he kind of tells Tariq Aziz, to start creating this coordinated strategy for obstructing and resisting the inspectors. And he hopes that the uh, international community besides America and Britain will become tired of this, right? All the obstructions, the harassment, et cetera, et cetera. And that they'll just want to return to normal trade relations with Iraq. And also that they might be fearful of American power in the post-Cold War world. And eventually this will allow them to come back into the, the family of normal nations here. Uh, so that's his basic strategy for most of the post, sorry, most of the post-desert storm 
conflict. Um, okay. There are a few details. You know, I don't write a ton about Saddam specifically in the book. There are a few details that change in the 90s. That essentially remains his, his outlook. Although on the flip side, I don't want to mask how successful the inspections actually were. Because right. the inspections, you know, they dismantle his nuclear program very successfully. They find a huge biological weapons program, although it takes a while. And they destroy catalog most of that. And they destroy and catalog, catalog and, and destroy or seal a huge chemical weapons program. And so in spite of Iraqi uh, noncompliance, you know, the inspections were remarkably, I, this is sort of my opinion, the inspections were remarkably successful. What the American political conversation focused on was the obstruction, right. not what they actually found and destroyed. Right. So shifting ahead a little bit now sure. to the the Clinton administration, right? George H.W. Bush is defeated for re-election in 1992. Uh, first, well, I guess the only two presidents before that had happened as well. But anyway, he's defeated for re-election. re-election. Bill Clinton comes into office in 1993. And what is sort of early Clinton administration thinking about Iraq? I mean, is this was Saddam on Clinton's radar? Was this something that he ignored at first? You know what were what was his policy towards Iraq, and also what was what was his administration thinking about the Middle East now as well? Yeah, so Clinton's policy is essentially the same. I, I okay. argue. You know, he's dealing with first of all a domestic political focus, and right. second of all, these all these foreign policy crises erupt during his tenure that take his attention away from Iraq, and throughout much of the decade, Iraq appears to be, you know, not exploding imminently so right uh it's not a huge focus in the 1990s and so he's willing to kind of go along with the political consensus that will keep the pressure on saddam more or less indefinitely even if he um even if he complies with the inspections he's a little more concerned i think than bush with the international community he knows the international community is not down with the way america is conducting containment especially this commitment to sanctions forever. And he knows that over the course of the 90s, the Iraqi health crisis is an obstacle, an increasing tragedy and obstacle to uh, being able to keep the pressure on Iraq. You know, by 95, it's become really, really, really bad there. Right. And so he tries to signal to, uh, basically tries to signal toughness to the American political scene while signaling flexibility to the international scene. And what he basically says is, well, if Saddam Hussein were to fully comply with inspections, as well as all these other requirements that come in some some later Security Council resolutions, like even things like respecting human rights in Iraq, which is not going to happen under the Ba'athist regime, right? Uh, then we will consider removing the sanctions. But that's not going to happen. So it's really a moot conversation. And that's kind right. of Clinton's way of, you know, navigating between the domestic and the international demands. And for the rest of the decade, you know, his policy is basically uh, Iraq threatens its neighbors. We rush forces to the region and we issue threats, right? And at some points we actually bomb Iraq like Desert Fox to try to keep him down. We keep supporting the inspections. Uh, But at no point was he ever, I I think at no point was he super willing to expend a lot of political capital in actually changing Iraq strategy or challenging that, that consensus about regime change. So in the early, well, I guess throughout most of the Clinton years, you know, after, but certainly after, uh, the Gulf war starts to recede from view. I mean, what is Iraq's place in American politics? Does Iraq itself recede from, from view as being sort of a hot button issue that's being debated between the parties or is this something that still really is front and center in American politics, despite all these other things swirling about uh, in the 1990s? It's a really important question. And I get this a lot and this question a lot in, in various talks that I've done. And I, I think the issue here is the difference between the salience of an issue and the spectrum of thought about an issue. So I okay. wouldn't say that Iraq is a super salient political issue in the 90s. It is in 1997 and 1998 in the lead up to Desert Fox when you have this series of inspections crises 
you have a, a rising neoconservative movement and, and really you, know, you can add the dem- most of the Democrats and many, most of the Republicans to this that push Clinton to try to be tougher on Iraq. And that leads to the Iraq Liberation Act, right? That's the only time in the 90s I would say that Iraq becomes a super salient political issue. Right. But I think that the way Americans thought about Iraq is still being shaped in important ways, even though it's not on the front pages of the New York Times or on you know dominating CNN. So for, let me give an example of this, right? Every time the inspectors find something big in Iraq, especially if they find something big that it was very clear the Iraqis were trying to hide, like they right. do with this trove of biological weapons documents in 1995 that was revealed by Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, uh, Hussein Kamel. The American political spectrum, and, you know, most commentators, and I'm not just including neo- neoconservatives here, included a lot of liberals, included a lot of uh, Democrats, moderates, say, well, this isn't a crisis worth going to war over, but it shows us that Saddam is never, ever going to comply with these inspections. That every time we think we're done with the inspections, we find something else, either a way that he's trying to hoodwink us or something that he's hidden that he could use to revive his programs after he's gone. But the important thing is his intentions are not changing. Right. And that becomes a lesson that even though Iraq is not a super salient political issue, it's becoming more deeply ingrained as a common sense point. So when you reach a crisis with Iraq, that's the pre-existing common sense. And that happens in a whole bunch of ways with different issues regarding Iraq, uh, different ways of looking at Iraq in the 1990s. Um, I, I think that's one of the more unique aspects of my book is, is not so much focusing on, you know, did Iraq dominate the headlines of the 90s? Right. But how did people think about Iraq in the 90s? How did that change? How did that shape later decision making? Right. So, you know, so moving into the second part of the 1990s, right after the mm-hmm. after Clinton's reelected, how does thinking, I mean, you sort of are alluding to this right in your previous answer, but how does thinking about Iraq change? Essentially, you have the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998, which Clinton signs and basically says that it says explicitly official American policy is the removal of Saddam Hussein from Iraq. What what leads to this from sort of moving from this containment policy, which, as you said, has been generally successful in constraining Saddam's uh, broader regional ambitions? How does that think American political thinking shift from containment towards explicitly endorsing regime change? Really, really great question. So. I, I see it as a pretty gradual shift over the course of the 1990s, but a deci- by the end, pretty decisive. I think you see a bunch of things coming together there. One is that frustration, frustration with Saddam's continued obstruction right, of the inspectors, as well as his continued human rights abuses. That's definitely a factor. Right. Another factor is that the United States, or at least many Americans, politicians, policymakers, strategists, the United States as the unipolar power. Uh, you know, containment for them was not something a unipolar power should have to do. If Saddam is a, you know, mid-level regional power, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to achieve regime change there. Right. In the 90s, there's another discourse about democracy in which democracy comes to be seen as kind of the default, the universal default of societies. And so there's this, I think, somewhat naive hope in the 90s, again, not just on the right, but across the political spectrum, that if you remove Saddam Hussein's regime, well, democracy is the natural thing that will flow from that. So why not pursue regime change there? Right. There's also a key shift in the mid-1990s. It's not really about ideas, but it's about the situation on the ground in Iraq. Uh, In 1995 and 1996, Saddam Hussein crushes these, first of all, he crushes a major coup attempt that the United States was sponsoring. And he also crushes the uh, part of the Kurdish opposition in the north that was allied with the Iraqi National Congress. The Iraqi National Congress was the main Iraqi exile group that was very politically influential in the United States. It had a presence in Kurdistan up until 1996 when it was crushed in a pretty uh, hackneyed attempt at overthrowing the regime by the Kurds and by the uh, Iraqi National Congress. Now, you know, Part of the reason why containment was able to maintain some political legitimacy in the 90s 
was this hope that it will be solved by the quote unquote silver bullet solution. That at some point you keep the pressure on and some general is going to off Saddam Hussein. Right. And then we'll have a more, we'll have still have a nasty guy in power, but he'll be compliant with the United States. He won't be this sort of psycho like Saddam. Right. And so once Saddam crushes the internal opposition, now it seems like he's pretty much safe. Like he's going to be in power indefinitely. He's only about in his late 50s at that point. So he's got a good 20 years left. That's not like an immediate crisis, but it affects the way Americans think about it. And they, by 1997, 1998, when we get to the Liberation Act, a lot of American politicians and intellectuals are arguing there's no other way out with Iraq. It's either Saddam forever or regime change. And that's one of the things that pushes the spectrum away from containment and to regime change. And, and so sort of following on from that, I mean, why why do so many people, you know, American elites, people operating in Washington, why are they so concerned about Saddam and Iraq, you know, years after the Gulf crisis? Is it because they're concerned about potential, you know, WMD program? Do they think that he actually poses a major threat to the stability of the Middle East? I mean, why is there this continued... Um, obsession, for lack of a better mm. term, with Saddam and Iraq uh, really throughout this period? So I think at the core of it, I think there's maybe two things I can say to that. One is the broader, in the broader mood of the post-Cold War world with all of this, I would say, very real progress towards democratization in the world. He's a major holdout, right? He's a, right. Uh, I can't think of the right metaphor, but he's sore thumb he's sticking his thumb out whatever digital uh metaphor you want to use he's defying <laughs> the united states at a time where its power seems unchallengeable and the course of right. history seems to be going in its direction i think that's right. an underlying factor but probably the bigger reason is that it is americans thinking well what would have happened if saddam hussein had had nuclear weapons during before desert storm right well there probably wouldn't have been a desert storm Right? He probably would have been able to get away with at least the seizure of Kuwait and would fundamentally change the strategic landscape of the Middle East and probably start a rush to achieve nuclear weapons by many countries in that region. And you know, what could possibly right. make that region worse? A nuclear arms race. And so I think it, that's essentially the same logic as the Gulf War. But the big change that starts to happen over the course of the 1990s is you, you bring terrorism to that. Right. right? If Saddam... It, actually, sorry, you bring, you bring two more things in. You bring in terrorism and you bring in this discourse about revenge, especially in the in neoconservative circles and the influence of these uh, quote-unquote scholars like Laurie Malroy. You start to get the argument that uh, Saddam Hussein is fixated on revenge and that he's using terrorists to get it. Right? And that's okay. the, uh, the precursor to the Bush administration's nexus argument in which right. Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, this threat of rogue states giving WMD to terrorists, that's not a, that's an uncontainable threat, an undeterrable threat, and an intolerable one after 9-11. Um, so that's, that's my answer to that. <laughs> so, okay, so Bush, George W. Bush gets elected president in 2000, hotly contested election, um, but he becomes president in January 2001, and like we were just saying, it is official American policy now for since 1998, um, uh, October 1998, if I if I remember correctly, um, to remove Saddam from Iraq. So, so we do already have the foundations for this. Mm-hmm. But what is Bush? And I, I mean Bush specifically. What is his personal thinking about Iraq and its place in the Middle East? I mean, is he? Does he have early conceptions about Iraq? Is he concerned about it? I, I mean, when he comes into the White House in January 2001, what is his personal thinking about this issue? It doesn't seem like he had a super strong opinion on Iraq. Yeah, I think okay. he was also intending to be a more domestically focused uh, president. Right. And his original foreign policy vision was shaped much more by great power concerns. So I think, you know, the administration does a few reviews of, of Iraq, but, you know, there's this document from like September 6th or something, September 6th, 2011, something around that 
first week of September, where Donald Rumsfeld says, we really need to get a policy on this country. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you have, you have people in the White House who are very strongly pro-regime change, but they're kind of balanced out by Powell and by the more, more realist elements. And Bush just doesn't seem like he was pushing on it. And uh, so that, I, I imagine that would, would have been a trajectory of Iraq policy had there been no September 11th. So how does how does 9-11 change? Well, actually, before I ask that, what are some of the other folks in the administration? I mean, you, you just mentioned there are some people who are very in favor of regime change. Who are those people? And then, I mean, you mentioned Powell, on the other hand, who's sort of more has more restrained views. I mean, what, what are sort of the divides within the Bush administration, mm-hmm. within his inner circle or maybe not his inner circle necessarily, but sort of the within his foreign policy circle? Uh, what are the divides on Iraq policy and, and thinking about Saddam's regime? Important question. So the two hotbeds of pro-regime change, uh, Iraq hawk, Iraq hawkery in the Bush administration are the vice president's office and, and much of his staff, people like John Hanna and uh, the Defense Department, right? okay. Undersecretary of Defense Paul, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld himself, and then a lot of just the staffers, uh, civilian staffers in the Defense Department were neoconservatives who had been Iraq hawks since the Persian Gulf War. Uh, they also, those people also act as really important conduits for outside regime change advocates, you know, from neocons like Kagan and Crystal to uh, historian Bernard Lewis and, and the uh, scholar Fuad Ajami and Kanan Makia. Right. They, they kind of bring a, a outside intellectual firepower in favor of regime change into the administration. And then I think the way most scholars think about it is that that pro-regime change element of the administration is balanced out by Powell and Rice uh, at, at, at State and the National Security Council, who generally don't appoint regime change advocates. I think the only limit to that way of looking at it is that I don't really see Powell and Rice as super, I mean, super committed to containment. Okay. Right? They don't really seem to ever make a case for containment. Although they, they, you know, they say in their congressional testimonies in 2000 when they're, or 2001 when they're being appointed to those positions that they think containment is fine. It's not like they're playing the role of George Ball in the Vietnam War, right. who actually right. makes a case for not doing it right? Right. Or, or for more restraint. And I think it's a really important factor in, in thinking about why the war happens. So I, I, the question that I was going to ask earlier then is sort of how does 9-11 change the whole calculus for, for Bush and his advisors? I mean, how does that transform their thinking about Iraq and transform um, the urgency or maybe create a sense of urgency for the U.S. to do something about Saddam and his regime? Yeah, well, it's, it's important to say that 9-11 requires interpretation, right? Right. It, even in the moment, it requires interpretation because – it was not connected to Iraq. There were no right. Iraqis on the planes. Saddam Hussein was not involved, right? You know, right. mostly like, mostly Saudi and Egyptian hijackers, and you know, uh, Al Qaeda is this transnational organization with a right. Saudi at the head of it. And so, it's not so much that it just leads to this instant shift to Iraq. You know, even even hardcore neocons or or very like relatively few of them say after 9-11, let's invade Iraq right now. A lot of them say we need to pay more attention to Iraq. Okay. But I think it's really inside the Bush administration that you get, you get the combination of two things, right? The first is that we really have to do something. We have to shake up the Middle East because the Middle East is just this political and extremist cesspool from which terrorism will continue to emanate. Right, Al Qaeda right. and other groups, until we find a way of dramatically transforming it. Right, and so that leads to this desire for a more radical action, especially amongst the the Iraq hawks in the region. That if we can take out a state rival like Iraq in the Middle East and implant a democracy there, we can start a long term solution to terrorism. We can start undermining the conditions that create terrorism. There's also a desire, this is the importance of interpreting 9-11. Right. Uh, I'm actually, this is kind of my second book 
concept, and so I'll, I'll just go into it right now. Conservatives since the 60s have been interpreting terrorism as in large part a response to perceived American weakness and decadence. Okay. And that's something you can trace in conservative thought from kind of the rise of modern terrorism in the late 1960s. And that's how so many conservatives see 9-11, right? That Osama doesn't think we're going to really hit back. That he thinks that we're this paper tiger, that we're decadent, a collapsing civilization, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a desire in much of the Bush administration for a de- what they call a demonstration effect, that we're going to go out and smash somebody because we need to prove that we will smash people. Because that's the way to get other countries to stop messing with us and to stop okay. sponsoring or harboring terrorists. Right? Right. And so, and then, of course, there's just a massive political opening, right? The American people are desperate for action to be taken. They're much more pliable and willing to support dramatic action. Right. And they're much more concerned with terrorism. So that nexus concept becomes legitimized. And so, you know, without going way too much into the details, eventually the Iraq hawks using these ideas are able to win over George Bush and start to push for an invasion of Iraq as the centerpiece of the global war on terror by about the spring of 2002. So that's, you know, I do think 9-11 is absolutely critical. Uh, It's an absolute precondition for the Iraq war. Not the only precondition, but absolute one. I think that's the basic story, the basic ideas. So is is Iraq then, you know, because you talked about sort of the smashing effect. Is that is that really what's driving a lot of this? Okay, so 9-11 happens and we need to prove to transnational terrorist organizations like Al Qaeda that, we cannot, or that the United States rather cannot be messed with. Mm-hmm. So it's Iraq because of the issues that the United States have already been having with Iraq for the past 10 years. Is that part of the reason or a lot of the reason why Iraq is then chosen, even though there wasn't an actual connection between Al Qaeda and, and Saddam Hussein? I mean, the Iraq hawks and the administration uh, must have known that, or they did know that. So I mean, how, how were they able to, I mean, you talked about the Nexus event being legitimized uh, or the Nexus concept, but how, were, how did they initially put those things together to then be able to sort of create that or sell that as, as a credible policy or way of thinking about this? Well, I, I think that just, I want to change one thing about what I said earlier. Okay. I, the, the demonstration effect concept is aimed less at terrorist groups than it is aimed at state sponsors. Okay. Because terrorist, Al-Qaeda is not going to stop Right, period. I mean, right. they're fanatically devoted. Uh, a more rational actor like Bashar al-Assad might change his behavior if he sees, or Libya is a great example, right? You know, the Iraq right. war may have prompted Libya to uh, surrender its weapons message, its, its nuclear weapons program. That appears to be the demonstration effect in action, although it's okay. more complicated than that. Right. Um, yeah, and, and then on your question, I think that the... You know, like it, Iraq is not a country that's chosen just because the United States needed to smash something. You know, the actors who in, are involved in that switch or that transition to uh, focusing on Iraq have been fixated on Iraq for a long time. Right. Uh, you know, there had there was never an Iran Liberation Act or a North Korea Liberation Act. Right. Of course, with Iraq, you have this villainous leader who it's easy to rally people against, right? In contrast to Iran, which was under, I believe that was still Rafsanjani at the time, who was a right. more of a reformer. You know, North Korea is not doable because that will possibly involve a war with China and possibly the destruction of South Korea. Um, and then Iran is not just led by a, a more moderate leader, but uh, is a massive, you know, much larger society than Iraq. So Iraq does seem more right. doable. But then you also have, have to bring back in that revenge discourse, right? Right. You know, people like Mearsheimer, John Mearsheimer, you know, they argue before the Iraq war that, well, Saddam Hussein is essentially a rational actor and he's not going to throw away his regime and his survival by giving weapons mass destruction to terrorists. Well, the neoconservative and, and the Iraq hawk answer to that is, well, we've seen him gamble and mess up before. 
right? right. Like invading Kuwait. So maybe it's not necessarily about rationality, but just the tendency to gamble. But that he's also fixated on revenge, right? That he supported, uh, you know, um, Paul Wolflitz, for example, had supported this book and even handed it out inside the Defense Department that said that Saddam Hussein was responsible for pretty much every major terrorist attack against the United States in the 1990s, <laughs> uh, starting with the World Trade Center attack in 1993. <laughs> and so I think they really believed he was behind September 11th or involved in it. You know, really? they, okay. they pushed that the Prague story and other connections extremely hard inside and outside the administration. And so if you factor in this belief in Saddam Hussein's desire for revenge, all of a sudden the nexus concept looks very possible. Right. Very threatening. Because he maybe he will actually do that. And then when right. you know in after 9-11, you know, people's conception of what was possible had just totally changed. Right. And uh, when you put yourself in that context, that emotional context, you start to see how you could build momentum for what now pretty much everyone agrees was a mistake. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. So throughout 2002, I mean, the United States, I, I was seven years old at the time, but I can mm. still remember some of it quite well. I mean, I still remember 9-11 like it was yesterday, <laughs> um, as, as I'm sure every American who had a memory at that point could. Um, throughout 2002, right, there's a very public debate, a public political conversation about Iraq as the Bush administration is trying to build its case for a potential invasion or potentially to do something. Within the Bush administration, what does that process look like based on your research? I mean, how, how are uh, Iraq hawks and, and Bush's national security team, how are they trying to build this case to do something about Saddam and, and, and actually potentially invade Iraq and, and possibly overthrow him? Well, uh, full disclosure about this book. I think this book does not, you know, systematically explore the debate within the administration. Okay. Because other scholars have done that extremely well, especially Michael right. Mazar and the journalist Robert Draper. Uh, right. These, you know, hundreds of book. interviews that they've conducted. Right. So, but I think the, the, the funny thing within the administration is that there is no debate. Right. Okay. That. There's just not doesn't seem to be a moment where the principals sat down and said, "What are the pros and cons? What are the options here?" And you know, they definitely debate how to do it, right? I mean, the Powell and and Rice side of things says we need to go to the UN, need to build a coalition, et cetera, et cetera, make this more legitimate. The Cheney and Rumsfeld side don't want to do that, right? They kind of want to just do it more unilaterally. But there's just not, you know, I. When you compare it to something like Frederick Logovall's choosing war, you can see a right. real debate there, right? Right. Uh, even amongst the, the more hawkish members of the administration, you see a little bit of agonizing in people like McNamara. I just don't think that uh, occurred in the case of the Iraq war. Although when the full documentation can be seen, maybe we'll see that. Right. I think what's more important is, or at least important for the book that I wrote, is trying to understand the public debate. Because when the Bush administration starts pushing Iraq as the centerpiece of the war on terror, the majority of the pushback is tactical, right? From Democrats, okay. from more realist-leaning Republicans, from a lot of liberals, from a lot of the media. It's more, uh, well, how do we do this the, the right way? As the, title, uh, the fifth chapter of the book is called The Right Way to Change a Regime, as opposed to a systematic effort to say, do we really need to pursue regime change in order to achieve our security goals or in order to right. fight terrorism? Um, when you look at the people who said containment is adequate, still adequate for those goals, or that we should focus on renewing containment, like using kind of the post 9-11 political capital or international capital to restore containment, that's a very relatively small group of people. It's realists. And it's sort of non-interventionist leaning Democrats who say that containment is working and we should keep doing it. But like mainstream Democrats, for example, your Joe Bidens, right. they never come forward and say containment is working. Right. And that we should stick with it. Right? They say, are you, you know, they kind of ask the Bush administration, are you, do you have enough troops? 
uh, let's go right. to the UN first. We need to try inspections again, right? But to me, it's all very procedural. And the Bush administration really never had any intention of seeing the inspections through or you know, <laughs> uh, compromising with any other countries. Right. Um, so I think that's the important way to think about the, the spectrum of debate. And, and really, I, you know, if I could say one of the main contributions of this book, it would be explaining how that spectrum of debate came to be right. going back to the Gulf War. When you were writing this book and doing the research for it, um, you, what, what do you think some of the challenges were in writing about a topic that has been, you know, in one way or another, sort of constantly talked about for nearly the last 20 years? I mean, what were some of the what were some of the things that you thought you might anticipate in terms of challenges and maybe what were some unexpected ones, too, in trying to sort of craft this narrative? Yeah, well, probably the biggest challenge is that it's not like doing the history of something in World War One, where we have access to all the documents that we want. Right. So the book is designed in a way that I think still makes contributions to scholarship without being a Frederick Logeval type choosing war book, which, of course, I love that book, but it's right. just not the book that can be written right now. Right. Uh, one of the other challenges was just the the fact that Iraq is so, you know, reshaped the way that Americans think about the war, uh, uh, the world. Right. And I think reshaped our politics too. Is that, for example, it's so tied to the debate between liberal internationalism and realism. Right. That I really wanted to avoid making the book about that. Right. Right. So you had to kind of step back and like one of my advisors, Ben Waterhouse, he put it really well. He said, Try to write this as if it was a book about the, Span- uh, the Philippine-American War, right? Okay. As if, for the most part, the you know the continuing relevance of Iraq and, and the continuing debates about it. Try to keep those a few steps removed from what you're actually doing, because you need to write a history book. It's not a right. policy book. It's not an advocacy book. Right. Um, so that was something I had to keep in mind because if, if I can, you know, be perfectly frank. Uh, I opposed the war as a 13 year old. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I remember my dad and my, his neighbor arguing about it and I was late for school because they were arguing yeah. about it in the front yard. My dad was against it. So I kind of just followed his lead on that one. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, I say, right. The first sentence of the book is I think it was the greatest blunder, uh, since Vietnam. So I also had to put those, uh, opinions aside a little bit. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, just remembering as well. I mean, both my parents were were adamantly opposed to the war as well, and I remember thinking about even I was I was even younger than you. Like I said, I was seven uh, in <laughs> two thousand two, and and when the and when we actually invaded, I remember my parents just constantly talking about it, not only in front of me and yeah. just like shouting at the television, but also with everyone they knew, just that they were adamantly opposed to it, and, and most people that they knew um, were ambivalent about it, uh, I remember thinking too, which was quite striking, especially sort of thinking about that now being an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, but anyway, I, I guess for, for my final question, if, if a policymaker or someone who, you know, was thought about Iraq in American politics or sort of the future of Iraq for America's Middle East policy picked up your book, what's the, if, there, if you have to choose one thing for them to come away from reading your book, what do you think it should be? Hmm. Uh, I would say think about the. I would say to to think about the scale of American power in the world. Okay. And I, I don't necessarily put myself in in the kind of the restraint cr- crowd or category, but I think one of the sort of lessons here is that containment containment came to be seen as a conservative. Not conservative like right leaning, but conservative as in limited in goals. Right. Almost unambitious, static policy. Right. Compared to what Americans believe they could achieve in the post 9 11, a post Cold War unipolar world. Right. My lesson is if you look at containment, uh, what we're actually trying to do, it was a phenomenally ambitious policy. Right. It involves supporting. a decade of intrusive weapons inspections in a hostile country. It involved two no-fly zones over about a third of Iraqi territory that we maintained permanently 
from 1990, um, 1991 on. It involved sanctioning and almost cutting off completely a country from outside trade, right? Or one of the world's largest ex- oil exporters. So, in, you know, with all these neighbors, right, it involved a permanent U.S. military position in the Middle East. Right. It involves several instances of the United States striking Iraq with missiles or air power to try to get it to, comp- to comply with the UN. So it was not a conservative <laughs> limited policy. It only was <laughs> conservative and limited in the spectrum of what Americans thought was possible with their power in that decade. And so I think, right. for example, when I think about Syria, right, and I strongly supported Barack Obama's position and his restraint that he exercised in Syria. Because I think he saw it in terms of, uh, you know, intervening seemed to many like it wasn't a big deal, but it was a huge deal. And, uh, you know, containment only seems restrained now because we invaded the darn country. Right. Right. So I don't know how to make that into a lesson. (laughs) It's more like the classic historian thing of being a Cassandra, you know, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure that I'm sure that someone would could could glean something <laughs> could, could glean something out of the of the answer, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and certainly out of the book too. Well, I think that's a good point to leave it there. So, thank you, Joe, for coming again on the show. Really appreciate having you. Um, the book is the Regime Chain Consensus. Iraq and American Politics, 1990 to 2003, published just last month, July 2021, with Cambridge University Press. Thanks again, Joe, for coming on. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Grant. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone. Uh, We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 